You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Robert Freeman Wexler is the author of the novels The Circus of the Grand Design and The Painting and the City and the short story collection Undiscovered Territories. His new novel is The Silverberg Business. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thanks for having me. Your new novel is a, a kind of a detective story set in 1888 and your, your main character, Shannon, He's a detective for the Llewellyn Detective Agency, which is clearly based on Pinkerton. Uh, talk about uh, researching who Pinkerton w- were and what they did and creating a character who worked for an analog of them. Well, first, I read a big book about the Pinkerton Agency and didn't like some of their policies. And so I made an agency that was opposite of them. Like they supported strike breakers. They supported the business side of striking, for example. So I had my agency support the strikers instead. Um, and also because um, you know, Pinkerton had been an abolitionist and, you know, worked to end slavery, but then somehow ended up, it seems like the opposite of that would be ending up on the side of big business and, you know, mine owners, factory owners, I don't know. So, You know, one thing that struck me as I was reading your book about Pinkerton was that he was not only innovative, I would imagine, in the world of detection in terms of like turning it into a franchise. As a businessman, I mean, Pinkerton was essentially like, I guess, a large franchise operation. And there's been nothing like it since, really. But, you know, they were the McDonald's of detection in the early 19th century, or late 19th century, that is. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting to read when they established offices in other places and how they trained people. And I think I I wasn't all that aware of it. It it started um, because of reading Dashiell Hammett, reading that he had been a Pinkerton, he had worked for the Pinkerton agency before he started writing detective fiction. And then Dashiell Hammett's writing went into the making of this book uh, I, I absorbed a lot or copied a lot. <laughs> well, you know, I, I really love the character of uh, Shannon in this book. I think he's a really interesting character because he has aspects of, of that, you know, appealing Sherlock Holmes, using the science, sticking to facts. But there's a whole other side, too. So talk about, you know, how did you create the character that did Shannon come first, or did the detect- detective aspect come first? I think all, all at once, really, because when I was thinking about what the book would be, um, I actually can't exactly remember how I sort of settled on Hammett's uh, Continental Op character. You know, if you've read those, the Continental Operative Stories and The Dane Curse and uh, Red Harvest were the two novels from it. But in those, it's this um, unnamed um, detective who doesn't really have much past or inner life or anything. Um, He's just, he does the work. And I I wanted to take that, but also make a real person out of it. You know, I wanted to have someone who had, you know, past and present and future and, you know, a real life um, and a name, even. <laughs> not just be the unnamed, you know, guy. But um, so all that really was washing, mixing and whatever all at the same time to come together. You know, 
one of the things I think that's really interesting about this book is you've done an extensive amount of historical research. It's really remarkable all the different threads you combine and the different people you create and the places you create. And to me, one of the most amazing things was the the city of Galveston. I did not know. I just think, you know, my experience of Galveston is I read a book about uh, the the famous hurricane and I and you know the song (laughs) but I you know through all of that as I started this book I did not realize it was on an island and that seems really dodgy from the very from the get-go and it's not just an island it's a sandbar basically there's no bedrock Wow, that's really scary. And I didn't know that till I started researching because I, I grew up in the area, but I never I thought of it just for the beach, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so reading, like I still don't quite understand. I mean, there aren't tall, tall buildings, but even the I don't know five or six story or more buildings they have. I guess they drive pilings down into the sand and. Boy, I don't know. And the bridges, all that stuff. It's there's no nothing to support it. I mean, think of like the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, was built on you know bedrock, and the, you know, like there is no bedrock. There's also no fresh water, which you know, that's the really from uh, uh, the mainland. the The whole setup is is really interesting now. Um, the other thread of history that you choose really unique threads of history to build like a story that's very coherent and easy to grok and the whole mystery aspect of it is is really well worked out and this revolves around uh, Jewish settlements in um, Texas and a kind of a land scam around those so uh, talk about the Jewish noir aspect (laughs) of this I think that's a really great, uh, you yeah. know, it's a great inroad for us. Mm-hmm. I again, it's like all those things tumbling around because I hadn't ever written such a Jewish book before. But as I was thinking of the mystery, like what is the book going to be? I'm thinking about sort of a mystery or a crime book, and Galveston. And I guess it was just in the research, think, finding this um, historical figure, Rabbi Henry Cohen of Galveston, and he had helped with a real um, movement for relocating Jewish refugees a little later than the time of this book. It was in early 20th century. It's called the Galveston Movement, <clears throat> where he would, they brought refugees in through Galveston just as an entry point. So they didn't stay there. They found places around the country. And so they were sort of funneled through Galveston, which I thought was interesting. Because I guess as the people who set it up were looking at, like in New York, how everyone just stopped on the Lower East Side or other parts of the city and didn't go anywhere else. And there wasn't enough room for them, living in tenements, etc. And so the idea was to you know, there's this whole huge country, so help help people get elsewhere. Um, and so that then led into my thinking of, you know, this um, a scam revolving around them because, of course, you know, there were, there were people who wanted to help refugees, and so there were people who wanted to make money off of people who wanted to help refugees. And there was actually something which... Uh, I actually need to get my copy of the book, sorry. There was something I found in the research. I had already come up with the story. And then, and I was looking at the newspaper from Victoria, Texas, from that period, and looking online at other things. And I actually found something that was not from the Victoria newspaper. It was, I say this in the acknowledgments, but it's, it was from a town called Canadian, Texas. And in that newspaper from 
two months after the time of this novel was this thing, it's on page five, where I say, L. Herman, a New York money changer and lender and banker has disappeared with $5,000 belonging to Polish Jews, et cetera, et cetera. And so for the novel, I moved it to the Victoria newspaper. Um, but I just, I couldn't believe I found something that supported what I had made up. So, you know. It, that, I guess uh, you could uh, chalk that up to extensive research. You immersed yourself so much in the world that when you invented something, it was already there waiting for you to use. <laughs> so, and there's probably more that I, you know, haven't found, but I just couldn't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, um, another aspect of this book that exists certainly in our world and in our time that plays a prominent part in the book is poker. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of poker playing. Are you a poker player yourself? Uh, no, um, I'm not. <laughs> so I had to I had to learn a lot and also find people to help me and read what I wrote to, you know, help me make it so that real poker players would, I hope, not get annoyed by reading it. But also not put so much in that people who don't care that much about poker would be annoyed too. And I, I don't, I don't know if I got the right balance, but I hope I, so. I would say you got exactly the right balance. It's really the the scenes with poker are, are really gripping, for reasons even beyond the game. Now, early on in this book, we're reading along, and there's a change in the paragraph. And then all of a sudden, it starts out kind of realistically, but then we go into a place where you're thinking, wow, what the heck's going on here? And we rapidly realize that this is one of Shannon's dreams. Dreams and, and, and daydreams and kind of visions of that nature play a big part in this book. So I'd like you to talk about, do you write down your own dreams? No, I have, but I don't regularly. Um, they never, I never seem to be able to make them sound interesting once I've taken up. But I think you know, I've heard a lot of people say that, or I've heard people say they don't want to hear other people's dreams because they're only interesting to the person who dreamed them. But I, I like using dreams. I mean, I like using it. I probably grew out of interest in surrealist art with the dreamlike images and etc and so it's more trying to use dream in imagery or, or what literary dream in imagery whether it works it sounds like a real dream i don't know or it's a real dream dressed up in a way that makes would make readers you know care about it but um and also, I like the idea in things like this as the the dream is a conduit to what's happening around him because there's all these other weird things that aren't in dreams, and then they're also invading his dreams. It's kind of how I think of it. You know, I think one of the aspects of the the dream writing in this is the actual experience of reading the writing. In that, when you read a book. These days, 99% of the time when you read a book, you kind of see it as a movie in, your, in what's left of your brain. And, and you think of it, okay, well, this is a movie. But books can do things with dreams the way you write that just really can't be done on on the screen. Although I could, ima I could imagine somebody... There's one filmmaker, I think, in particular, who might be able to deal with this material effectively, but it'd be a long shot. <laughs> but that said, I think that writing and prose and the novel, this novel is so good and so much fun to read and so immersive and exciting and well-written and yet kind of charming and sweet and not super in-your-face about how good it is. So um, talk about using the medium of prose to 
convey these kind of surreal images in the dreams. And also, this leads to the another big aspect of this book, the otherworldly journeys. Um, you do a great job of using one to bridge to the other and both of them to bridge to this uh, kind of imaginative writing where you're able to talk about things, talk about reality in a way that you can't discuss reality if you're just discussing only reality. Yeah. I mean, originally, I mean, I guess the earlier drafts of my thinking had been keep it real until he leaves real, you know, his first trip to Skullhead Land, let's say. And then when he comes back, then the unreal is leaking into his reality. But I ended up going back and having some leakage, I guess you'd call it, happen early, because it didn't really work. It didn't make sense to have such a clear, like, here's the real, here's the unreal, and then it's a mix. It felt wrong. So then I mixed it in and, and thinking about, at, at first when I, so in the painting in the city, which is the previous novel, I do that from the very beginning. It's, and it's more contemporary. It's an artist is the main character. And I, I, the way I wrote it originally, it just, it was back and forth. And in this one, I thought, I don't even remember how I did that. I don't know how to do that anymore. It doesn't fit this book. And then it did. It, it wasn't even intentional, exactly. Um, but it ended up being the right way to do it. You know, dreams were a part of that, of course. So, you know, some of the dream parts, at least early on, came a little later. And then as I got more comfortable, it was, you know, incorporating. I mean, the dreams in the earlier parts I inserted later. But then in the later parts, it was more fluid. You know, uh, I think that... Um... One of the things that, that you do really well are, are these transitions to the other world. And, and so the the plot of this book takes us to Texas. And, and then, you know, you keep taking us just one step further and one step further. It's all believable. We're in Texas. We're in Galveston. We're on the beach. We're at this. We, then we're at this weird farmhouse, and we're inside the farmhouse, and so I think that whole other world journey is really closely written to adhere with what I've read about other other world journeys and in the people who purport to have actually been there. And it also is in keeping with the literary tradition, like Rip Van Winkle, in terms of the temporal distortion. So. Did you research other world journeys before you wrote the book, or did you just say, okay, we're going to the other world? Yeah, that. I, I didn't <laughs> do any research into that. I, it would be interesting to do. I maybe you can recommend some things to read because uh, I, I'm glad it somehow worked for you without uh, my researching it, but <clears throat> it was more of a I guess it's sort of like, who knows what's on the other side of any door you get to. It might be just a regular room or it might be, you know, some other world. So I kind of like that way of writing. <laughs> well, it's really fun to read it. And I think, too, that in terms of once we get to the other world, you do a good job of putting us in the place and experiencing the, the strange the strange creatures and, the, and especially the skull heads, which are worthy of a whole separate discussion, which we'll have shortly. But I think one thing that, that works so well throughout this book in terms of the other world and the supernatural elements is that they're mm -hmm. very clearly and cleanly experienced by Shannon, this detective who's very reality-focused except when he's dreaming. Um, and there you absolutely do a fantastic job of never over-explaining it. 
I think that that's really an important part of this book, of the power of this book, because things just, you know, weird stuff just happens. And so it's more powerful that way than, you know, well, well, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, I've always felt that it's better not to over-explain those things. I mean, you also can't just put things in randomly so they don't, feel like they belong like i hope everything is rooted and feels like it belongs even though it doesn't necessarily make any sense well i think it makes a great deal of sense all the the pieces of the other world once you as you read the book each piece of the other world connects in a way you can intuitively understand you can it's like uh looking at a plant that grows a long way underground and seeing the different parts of it that pop up yeah. you, from, uh, from above ground you'll just see the different parts but you might in, well intuit that there's a whole lot going on underneath that you don't see and really don't need to see because you just care about the plant that you're looking at and i think you do a great job of writing that uh, through that when you were creating this other world where Shannon finds himself in the, in the pursuit of his uh, 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 the the uh, white-haired gambler, um, did did you was was did that just pour out of your pen, or did you have to re-architect it? You know, the underneath part. <laughs> I mean, some of both. I. Um... I mean, like when I was starting this, I was just kind of visualizing um, that he ends up in this strange landscape, and I wasn't sure yet what it would be. And because I think because he started, he reached it originally from the, he was near the Gulf of Mexico, that got me thinking about like the ocean floor, and what if the ocean floor was now dry, and you know, baked into stone or something like that um, you know and it came I guess organically from that <clears throat> is he's going towards the ocean and the ocean isn't there except maybe that is the ocean but just not the ocean he thought it was and isn't the ocean anymore that kind of thing uh, and also there's the idea of making things hard on your character, you know, I put him into a situation where, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's no food, water, there's no shade, at least there's no sun, because there's no sun there, but, you know, it, you know, make, make them uncomfortable and see what happens is, is one way, and when you're stuck or when you're trying to figure out what to write next, like, you know, now you created these skull heads, and so I'd like you to explain to the listeners who the skull heads are, or what what they are, what the, they look like. And I think you do, a, and it's kind of a, again this kind of writing that's amazing in re- retrospect, but you don't experience it as amazing. You just go, you just going, what the heck? This is so weird and so much fun to read which is that you managed to create characters who don't speak (laughs) and and they're very different and you have a a whole arc including kind of you know a a a bit of a love story through there and it's 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 kind of like gobsmackingly weird i mean this book really is amazingly weird but at the same time, it's all very matter-of-fact and kind of normal, even when you were dealing with the skull faces, a poker game with skull faces. So talk about the skull, the skull heads. Well, that, that was quite one of the early uh, imaginings of the novel was uh, so there's the musician and painter John Langford who's a member of the Mekons, Waco Brothers, uh, does a lot of solo work. He started painting these uh, sort of country singers with bodies and skull faces. And he, he worked on a play that used those. Um, 
when I was thinking about this book, one of the things I was doing was looking at a book of his painting. And I, I was envisioning um, basically a skeleton sitting at this table with my character drinking whiskey and he would pour, you know, put the whiskey in his mouth and then of course he had no body so it would just be flowing out among, you know, and onto the floor. And that was impractical. <laughs> there were just pools of whiskey up there. And then I looked more closely at the paintings and they have, you know, bodies. They just have skull heads. And I thought, you know, why not? You know, that works. Um, and then part of that, while thinking of that was, okay, what if once I finish this novel, he's able to do the cover art? And so then that happened, you know, which was kind of amazing that I, it was all comes back around or whatever. And then um, two nights ago, I did a reading in Chicago where um, we did a thing together in a bookstore where he played some songs, you know, in between the parts I read stuff. So, you know, it's a great combination. But so then Skullhead, so I had to come up with, you know, the anthropology part, you know, who, who are they and how do they act and what are they doing? Is there, you know, came up with sort of the good skull heads and the not good skull heads, and, you know, and then the love interest skull head, which I hadn't intended, you know, there's the two parts where he gets there, leaves, comes back. And in the first part, you know, those skull heads are introduced and the saloon girl skull head, and he has no interest in her at all. He's repulsed. And later, things change. He's, he becomes more progressive and accepting other types of people. So. <laughs> Including skull heads. You know, you mentioned the Mekons. I have to say that it's... Uh, amazing this image that he comes up with for you for the uh uh book and that speaks to the book and speaks so strongly to you and also to to readers because i mean this brings back the delightful delightful you know sinbad the sailor movies um you know the early stop motion that harry hasn't worked and so there's a you know as you're reading this you're kind of thinking back to being a kid and seeing that. And so there's that kind of childlike delight. And I thought, when you mentioned the Mekons, I remembered that. I think the Mekons, first or second album I used to have, which had simply a picture of a chimpanzee at a typewriter. And, oh. and, and the title of the album was The Quality of Mercy is Not S-T-R-N-E-N. <laughs> I thought... It's a memorable image. Yeah. So now, um, one of the things I, I also like too is you, you do a great job of using animals in this book, as in the uh, especially in the supernatural aspects of it. Um, and this again is a common thing, and one of the ways that one might uh, describe this book is. Mark Twain by by way of Carlos Castaneda, and, and because so talk about creating the two spirit animals in this book because they are just wonderful characters. I mean, as I read them, I every time they appeared, I thought, "Oh my goody, this one's back!" Oh, and, and it's just that thrill of reading that that you really evoke so well in, in these passages. Well, the First, then, is, is Solo the Eagle, who's, you know, a, an eagle with one wing, but who appears to be able to fly anyway. And, and there's actually, in um, the town where I live, there's a nature preserve, and in the nature preserve, there's a, a raptor rehabilitation center, where they um, have some, some birds that wouldn't survive in the wild anymore. They have just for people to come see, and then they also rehabilitate injured birds that they can re-release once they're healed. So for many years, they had a bald eagle with one wing named Solo, who unfortunately died 
before the book could be published, but I um, based, based so my solo on that solo because um, there's just a really great old bird that, you know, is living there. And um, I thought, and then I, I have to look up, well, wait, are there even bald eagles in that part of Texas? And, you know, all that. It seemed to work, you know, and then I couldn't remember how eagles sounded, but, you know, YouTube has everything. I could look up, you know, how eagles sound, listen to them, all that stuff. And so, you know, and then in the process, on and on, it, it became <clears throat> clear that Solo needed to reappear in different points and try to help where possible, you know. And then, and then Zlata the goat, or the white goat that names Zlata, and, um, which is based on the Isaac Bashevis singer short story, Zlata the goat, which didn't exist yet at the time of that. So I had the character Shannon say he named the goat Zlata based on the folk tales his mother used to tell him. You know, who knows? Maybe Singer, you know, based his Zlata on folk tales from you know, Eastern Europe. I don't know. <laughs> and um, then I just, you know, the idea of that. You know, the skull has used, you know, brought in this white goat to lead Shannon home. You know, it made sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's one of the, the great, uh, the way you use the supernatural in the story seems so natural and intuitive. It, you can make, say things like this and it makes, seems super right and, and, and the way it all fits together. Um, and, and to the, uh, I guess the hints in this world, like, you know, using this, the, the smell of sea rot and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the kind of sea creatures, this also brings back, you know, my adolescent readings of Dagon by, and, you know, the call of Cthulhu by Lovecraft, I think, you know, that kind of the idea and you, I referred to this earlier, and actually I think discussed it in the book, you know, that the ocean to us, it looks, you know, although it's beautiful to see and the waves are ever-changing, in a sense it's kind of flat and boring, and compared to, especially compared to what's underneath, which is this wild wonderland of, of utter strangeness that we only, you know, halfway comprehend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't, I wasn't, I mean, of course, you know, Lovecraft, whatever is in, is in the back of the head in a way, but I, I wasn't really thinking of that at the time, but, um, and I don't even remember exactly where I came up with that part, at least the sea rot sort of smell, but, you know, everything naturally seemed to revolve around the ocean and hurricanes and storms stirring things up. Um, you know, so it all made sense as a thing. This wasn't a desert, you know, that it was being written about, or whatever. It's, you know, the ocean, how does the ocean smell? How does, you know, seaweed and all those things that get washed up start to smell as they rot in the sun? Um, and that kind of, you know, sensory imagery, tactile, sense and I could focus on that I had more trouble focusing on things like the countryside or something because I, I was I'm not there you know I don't live there and I'm, I didn't have time to go there you know sort of research what do the coastal marshes sort of feel like but um, I mean I had some experience with them as a child just from you know going to Galveston and going to that area you know, there's a lot of muck around there, a lot of uh, really, I mean, wetlands, basically, saltwater marsh and that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, one of the, you do a good job of incorporating threads of, of real history, and you talk about, you know, um, the, you know, uh, when life in, in the USA, which is, 
you know, in 1888, it's after the Civil War, but, you know, it's still firmly in the era of, you know, the Reconstruction and Jim Crow. And, and so that on one hand, you know, there are lynchings, and on the other, there's um, Madame Blackley, who, you know, when we read about it, you see, I'm thinking, well, this is a very good character for this book. <laughs> Only to to find out at the end that, yeah, she was real. So talk about the creating uh, Madame, by discovering and or creating her. Yeah, it is, <clears throat> you know, I, I read about her, you know, in my research, and realized, of course, I have to use her. Um, and one thing, <clears throat> in, um, she was lived in Victoria, Texas, where part of it was set, and she was just a local seer. People would come to her, their were, were prized bull was missing or something, and they would come and she would tell them where it was and things like that. And one thing was the way she was described in the different things I found was always ugly, like she was, and I don't, I didn't save any of this stuff. Well, actually I did, I'm sorry. I, I have a document I scanned. I would have to, we could pause and I could find it, but I decided the way she was described was partly a racist product of its times, that she was not an attractive person and probably because, you know, she was black, she couldn't be attractive, but she was helping white people find their lost cattle, or lost money, et cetera. And so I, I changed her appearance, you know, to make her <laughs> not as sort of the, whatever, cliche black witch, I guess, or something, um, it's, you know. Um, but it's just, again, if you're researching things, you find, you find things that you just, you know, have to use. And there's always the problem of possibly overusing the research. I mean, you can find things that don't really fit, but you use them anyway. There probably are things like that that I hope I ended up taking out. Um, I didn't know saying in the book, I, I just thought that what you did have recreated that time in, in both you know, the terms of the landscape and the way things looked and the way people talked, but also in terms of the social fabric and, you know, the fact that that was an entirely different society. It was woven from different stuff than our present day. Now, but speaking, speaking of present day, uh, there's one part in, in the book um, where... Uh, one of the characters has to go somewhere, and, and because he he there are no phones, and there's no the only way people can really communicate is by mail or by telegraph. You know, the person's really out of touch, and this made me think of how much the cell phone has affected you know the our ability you know as writers to plot stuff because. You know, it's a super big difference between a world where anybody can talk to anybody else essentially at any time, and that's a realistic part of the world, and plotting in a world where people communicate mostly by letter. It takes weeks, days, weeks, maybe months to, to get a letter back and forth. And so when you were plotting this book, you had to kind of put yourself in a in a world that was really, really different from the world in which you live. So I uh, talk about that kind of aspect of like recreating the past. You had to like cut yourself off from something that we take totally for granted. Right. We're so used to instant communication. It's, it's um, we get impatient if someone doesn't reply within five minutes to anything. Um, I mean, in some ways, I've noticed a lot of my writing, I'm doing that. I'm, I have been purposely setting things in a time before smartphones. The novel I'm working on now is, is like that. And I, I just, I think 
maybe I prefer that. But in this case, you know, I've read enough historical fiction and different histories to kind of grasp how long it took to communicate. So, and I'm old enough to predate cell phones and email and all that. So that makes it easier, I guess, to, to understand. I'm just thinking how, you know, I used to write letters to people and all that, which you don't anymore. Uh, that was how I kept in touch with my wife-to-be after we separated in college and went our different ways. Now, also, too, one of the aspects of this I really liked was, you know, the the music. There's a lot. Music plays an important part. Shannon plays the piano. And arts and acting, too, at the fact that uh, Shannon has had some uh, experience in acting gives him the ability to create different personas for himself. And he, and it's interesting. I like the way that he will turn them on and off. I said, well, I had to become Irish, Shannon. <laughs> so talk about that. Are you uh, an actor or uh, what? No. <laughs> no, I have no acting experience. <clears throat> it... Um... You know, I was thinking about whatever in detective fiction or people working undercover, or whatever, and they have to take on personas. But, you know, I thought it would make sense that his, when he started working for this detective agency, they made him get you know some training as an actor. I, maybe that happens in real life. I don't know. It should probably, but it seemed like, you know, and one thing I actually for myself, I've thought of taking improv classes just as part of, like if I'm, you know, doing readings or whatever, if I have some improv experience, I could probably be better at engaging with the audience, et cetera. And I, I still haven't done that, but you know, I thought it made sense, you know, and, and of course some people would be better at it than others. I do have, um, a detective who, who from the agency who's sent to find him, who he doesn't particularly like or think much of. And I doubt that person would be a good actor. He probably didn't even bother with his training. But, you know, Shannon did and learned from it and, uh, you know, realized how useful it is to become Irish Shannon. So also talk about the music, uh, uh, you know, given that uh, the Mekons uh, inspired this beyond, uh, you know, your ability to house millions of chimps somewhere <laughs> in the state uh, behind your house. Uh, you know, the Shannon plays a couple of instruments. Yeah. And and instruments actually even form part of the plot in terms of being uh, supernatural icons. So, and that also leads me to the idea of, too, of how you use the supernatural and mystery plotting to kind of complicate one another in in a way that makes them both more pleasing and enjoyable. Yeah, I mean the music. I mean, one of the things with that is that there's the 1941 movie with uh, Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys and Tex Ritter. And Tex Ritter is brought in to find these, you know, stagecoach bandits and he needs help. So he calls his friend Bob. And this is one of those communication things. Somehow, Bob is there instantly, even though... He's in, I think, North Dakota, and Bob Wells was in Texas or Oklahoma at the time, and Tex Ritter sends for him, and then next thing you know, he's there. Um, but they ride into town, you know, playing music and singing on top of a stagecoach, which I then put in the book. And so I made my Bob Wells more of the Bob Wells of this movie, the real Bob Wells, and then renamed him since Bob Wells wasn't born yet but and that was something i would wanted 
before I got to the part. So that comes after the part where Shannon's first shown playing music with the Skullhead. So I knew I wanted Bob Wills, but I hadn't gotten to that part yet. And then it worked in like, what did the Skullheads do with this other character? Well, you know, they make him dance, you know, they play music. So wouldn't they? I mean, of course, that all makes sense. <laughs> and Shannon's there, so they make him play music with them. Turns out he knows how, so maybe they knew he knew how, because they're skullheads. Um. Now, um, that other character, uh, Beaumont, uh, talk about it. He's based also based on a real character. Yeah. Um, uh, which one? Sorry. The, the arrow. Oh, sorry. Uh, Charles Delshow. Delshow, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right, he was a, a a butcher from Houston, Texas, or from Germany, I think, but was in Houston, Texas at about the period that I was set this, and so I thought, well, you know, I should use him too. Um, and I discovered him because of a, an article was in the Smithsonian um, that I saw online of one of the artists at the Smithsonian making three-dimensional models based on some of the art in the, is in the Aerospace Museum. Just some things in their collection on uh, fanciful flying machines. Um, so there was, you know, artwork or newspaper articles like, you know, like UFO sites, that kinds of things where, uh -huh. you know, alleged flying machine, whatever. And so, so there was a model of one of Del Show's uh, paintings of his flying machines. And, you know, that helped inspire that to bring him into the novel as a character. Because I looked up something about some of those different artists, and he was from Tech or in Texas. So, you know, that made sense. And he, uh, <clears throat> it ended up like with most outsider artists, I guess, he died and all his stuff was taken to the dump and someone was looking through his stuff at the dump and, a, you know, a collector or someone, you know, a junk shop, whatever, rescued things, showed them to the right people, you know, and, you know, they were saved. It struck me after I finished this that I, well, first off, I really enjoyed it. It's a hell of a good novel and the way you weave together the supernatural and the mystery and the, the grittiness of the history and the, the perspective of the characters. It's just outstanding on every level. And, and, but, and when I finished, I thought, wow, I wonder if he's going to write more Shannon novels. Is that a possibility? I don't think so. I mean, I've thought about maybe a short story. This is, you know, thinking ahead. But I thought, well, what if there's a, a commemorative edition 10 years. I don't know. Maybe I'll write a short story. But uh, who knows? I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm not planning to, but it, it's not impossible. Yeah, that's good to hear. So what are you working on now? Um, sort of two different things. I mean, one is a middle grade children's book that is finished, um, but needs more work. And then another novel, um, Sort of about two thirds of the way through that it, it's again historical and that I said it before cell phones. It's, it's set around 1999. Um, and um, it's not a whole lot, uh, I guess, that I want to say about necessarily, but it does involve some sort of magic ish plot. Um, involving Dick Cheney and uh, transforming the United States back into the right-wing idealized um, 1950s. <laughs> that uh, sounds like fun. I mean, they're working on that right now. Yeah, yeah. So we're using magic. So it, it's in, the idea is there's three parts. In the first part, it's a better 1999 than what we actually have had. Um, there's universal health care, thanks to Bill Clinton. 
Um, <clears throat> but then Cheney and his people take over, transform the country into a very um, evangelical 1950s-style society. And then by the end, we're that's gone, but we have what we have now. You know, it's just, you know, not as good as what it could have been, but here we are. When I saw the Silverberg business, I, the first thing I thought, I was taken back to my um, feckless uh, youth, you know, the golden age of science fiction, 15, <laughs> reading lots of Robert Silverberg. Yeah. <laughs> was, that, was that name in your mind when you wrote, when you made up that character? Yeah, I, it was. And it's because um, when I was in college, I was um, in, a, in an English class where the professor, there was a teaching assistant who was probably a creative writing graduate student, but I had not heard of creative writing at the time, so I didn't know that. Um, the professor was either, I don't remember how long, but he, was, he wasn't going to be there. So the teaching assistant gave us an assignment, which was a creative writing assignment, to write something introducing a new character and i was reading robert silverberg's novel lord valentine's castle who was serialized in fantasy and science fiction magazine and that section this whatever that month's um section of the serial introduced a new character and so that was when i discovered that writers learn things by reading other writers. I didn't know that because I didn't know what a writer was. So I, I saw, okay, there's a new character. How did he do that? And so I, you know, copied it, sort of what I wrote. And then thinking about <clears throat> what the book is, the, um, you know, I needed a name and thinking it should be a, a Jewish name, because it's a Jewish character, but not you know, I went through a lot of things, and then, you know, Silverberg, of course, because, you know, he, that Silverberg guy was a, a big part of my, you know, learning to write, so that made sense. I've been speaking with Robert Wexler. His brand new novel is The Silverberg Business. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Yeah, thanks for having me on this. It's, You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.